You see that uh, Norma McCorvey died last week? Norma McCorvey, she was the plaintiff in the Jane, she was Jane Roe in the landmark court case, Roe versus Wade. Roe was decided in 1973. Since that day, there's hardly been a more divisive issue in our country. Technology has developed immensely in the last four decades. Since the decision, we're able to peer into the human body and see the fetus clearly in ways that were unimaginable back in the 1970s. But the positions supporting or opposing the Roe decision have not really changed at all. Generally speaking, those who favor the right to an abortion do so for the same reasons as in the 1970s, as do those who oppose it. How could that be? How is it that with all of our modern technological wizardry, allowing us to see inside the human body things we never saw before, and with all the scientific advances in neonatal care that pushed back human viability by weeks since 1973, how is it that the basic arguments are the same? For that matter, how is it that capital punishment described in detail in this week's Parsha, since abolished, by the way, in Jewish jurisprudence two millennia ago, how is it that Judaism eliminated capital punishment 2,000 years ago with all of the advances in science and with all of our new modern, of, modern understanding of human physiology and psychology since biblical times? How is it that capital punishment is still, 2,000 years later, hotly debated in our country? In the early 70s, when Roe was decided, Steve Jobs had just dropped out of college and was traveling through India to seek enlightenment in Zen Buddhism. Apple had not yet been created. In the early 1970s, there were no smartphones, no streaming music, no HD technology, no email, no texting, no Google. Like for you millennials, that seems like prehistory. <laughs> we didn't even use fax machines. I still remember with amazement when I saw my first fax machine, working as a young attorney in my first job. It was difficult for me to fully comprehend that there were people overseas who had just seen this very document that was spitting out on that, remember that thermal paper back then? They were at their fax machines in Israel. At the same time as I was watching their words spitting out in New York City, I thought I was witnessing the last word in futuristic technology. <laughs> I still remember my first computer that I bought in rabbinical school 30-some-odd years ago. Those computers took a long time to set up and to learn how to operate. Uh, it was something called DOS or something like that that people tried to describe to me as like, Talmud, I understood. <laughs> Today, computers are so 
ubiquitous, so powerful, and so easy to operate that even my 90-year-old parents are emailing and Skyping all day, sometimes forgetting that I, unlike them, have not yet retired. <laughs> There's more technology packed into those desktops and laptops than that which powered Apollo astronauts to the moon. All this technology has given birth to an explosion of information. What used to take hours in a library can now be retrieved with the click of a mouse. A library? Do college students even know what a library is? All those years I spent hunched over books in my little cubicle. Why actually go to a library nowadays? if the entire written legacy of humanity is in your pocket. There's so much information out there that our primary task today is no longer to acquire information. What we need, we can find in an instant. But to learn how to sift through all of the information of the world and prioritize its relevance to us. Today, it is not about knowing a lot of stuff. It is about knowing where to find a lot of stuff. Norma McCorvey's death prompted me to reflect on the past 44 years and to wonder, with all of these advances in science and technology, with all the new tools that allow us to see every moment of pregnancy as we never could have imagined four decades ago, why are the arguments for and against Row the same. The reason, I think, is that when it comes to the core of what drives us in life, fundamentally, our concerns are moral, spiritual, and emotional, not technological. Science may help to determine when human viability begins, at what point, on what day, at what minute of what day can a fetus survive outside the womb. But even if one day science will be able to tell us precisely that split second when human viability begins, it will not be able to tell us when life begins. Because that's a moral question. Whatever science determines about the instant of viability will not determine the abortion debate. Because the concept of life, for most of us, is not primarily a scientific concept. And therefore, science does not have the last word. And even if someday we may develop technology to create human life entirely in the lab, even then, science will still not be able to tell us why we should even care when human life begins. Science is largely irrelevant to the question of why life should be protected, and why and under what circumstances does such protection outweigh other considerations like freedom. 
These are not scientific questions. These are moral questions. At best, science can play a supporting role, helping us to understand facts so that we can reach moral conclusions, but not in and of itself defining morality. There will never be a machine that can measure Hamlet's heart. Science tells us to be or not to be, not what ought to be. Science tells us what, not why. Science uses chemical equations. Life is about moral equations. By the end of the century, it might be common for people to live well into their hundreds. Scientists tell us that there might even come a day when people will live permanently. No death, just perpetual life. Sounds horrific, right? Ah. But even if we could live for centuries, it will still be the case that mine honor is my life. Both grow in one. Take honor from me and my life is done. Even if we could live forever, we will never be done with human virtues. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste death but once. We are so dependent on and enamored with technology today that we risk neglecting what will eventually keep us alive and make life worth living. The greatest risk to our humanity is our scientific capacities outstripping our moral capacities. We possess powers that the ancients assigned only to the gods. We are destroyers of worlds. Bestriding the narrow straits like modern-day Goliaths. What took centuries to build could be obliterated in one moment of murderous insanity. Millennia of human progress wiped away in a blink of an eye. It is the reason that it is more important than ever to be exposed to moral discipline. Now, especially now, when technology has exploded in its awesome capabilities, precisely now, we need more moral training than ever before. We need it to prevent us from becoming machines ourselves and eventually destroying our world. Religion is in the business of morality. So is law. This is the significance of Norma McCorvey. She forced us to consider the most basic questions of life, not simply legal precedent or constitutional jurisprudence. That's the facade of law, the framework of the legal construct, but the essence of law in free and virtuous societies is morality. While studying jurisprudence in law school, I remember how affected I was by the assertion of one of the great British jurists who wrote, every moral judgment is simply a feeling. 
that no right-minded person could believe in any other way without admitting that what he was doing is wrong. At its very essence, morality is a feeling. Feelings are the deepest and most human attribute we have. We can never allow our feelings to be replaced by the machine. Machines don't feel. They can never tell us what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. Mishpatim, this week's Parsha, means laws. The passage describes numerous laws, slavery, murder, manslaughter, property rights, money lending, and civil and criminal procedure. As any legal code, the description might appear to a untrained eye, dry and lengthy. Ancient lawmakers shared one attribute with modern attorneys. They are the only people in the world who could write a 10,000 word document and call it a brief. <laughs> but contained within all the details that legal minds like to obsess about is the concept in our Parsha that God is sanctified through moral behavior. The legal code in its essence is a moral code. The Parsha begins this way. And these are the rules that you shall set before the people. Most translations ignored that letter that begins the Parsha, Vav, which is the Hebrew letter slash word for and. And these are the rules. Most translations simply say, these are the laws that you shall set before the people. One of the great medieval commentators, Rashbam, expounded that is that one practically forgotten letter, Vav, meaning and, that connects the seemingly mundane laws governing daily life with the majestic and moral eloquence of the Ten Commandments and the Holiness Code. It's that small letter, Vav. It's just, by the way, for those of you who know Hebrew, it's just this little vertical line that connects say, the dry laws of compensation for a goring ox, detailed in our Parsha, with honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our task today is to remember the connecting Vav, to connect everything we do, every law, every rule, every regulation, to our majestic purpose for being. It's harder than it's ever been. We who possess unimaginable powers even a century ago are more baffled than ever in connecting the tools of empowerment to the reasons of human empowerment, connecting the details of life to the purpose of life. Don't forget to connect the details of life with your majestic purpose. Don't let the mundaneness of life, bury the glory of life. Don't let the dazzle of science cloud the brilliance of your soul. And never allow the radiance of technology to dull the luminescence of 
your moral center, the reason for living.